because you're going to want to follow along with the text this morning. Uh, Mark chapter 16, excuse me, chapter 15. As we uh, come to Mark chapter 15 this morning, we're going to find Jesus at the cross. Of course, we've already seen him in this chapter, tried at the court of Pilate. We've already seen him brought out on the way to the cross. And the man, Simon of Cyrene, uh, compelled to help Jesus carry the cross. Now in verse 22, we read, And they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated, place of a skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. Oftentimes we can learn the most by just paying careful attention to what the Bible says. Look at it there in verse 22. It says, And they brought him to the place Golgotha. Okay, fine. But now back up a little bit into verse 20. Look at what it says in verse 20. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. So get the picture. When Jesus left Pilate's court, he was being led. In other words, he could move on his own power. By the time he came to Golgotha, which is translated in Latin, Calvary, by the time he came to Golgotha, they had to, look at verse 22, they had to bring him. They brought him. In other words, Jesus was dragged the final distance to Calvary. Oh, don't think that anybody lovingly embraced him and carried him, you know, in their arms or gently brought him along. You can be sure that as a condemned criminal, the the people bring had no respect. They just grabbed him and dragged him the rest of the way. We like to envision in our mind, you know, Jesus carrying the cross and sort of staggering and and collapsing maybe a bit right at the place where they're going to crucify him. It wasn't that way at all. Probably Simon the Cyrenian brought the, the wood the rest of the way, and probably he probably threw it down defiantly and walked away. Maybe never even waiting to look back. He was so humiliated, embarrassed by what the Roman soldiers made him to do. And then Jesus, they probably just dragged him and dropped him in a heap at that wood. And then if you notice as well, that it says in verse 23 that they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. Okay, so get the picture here. They brought him meant that Jesus could not walk, right? He couldn't walk. They had to bring him. They had to drag him the final distance. But then we see that in not taking this wine mingled with myrrh, that was a drug that they gave people about to undergo crucifixion as a mind-numbing and pain-numbing drug. Matter of fact, there was a society of devout women in Jerusalem. They called themselves the Daughters of Jerusalem. And they saw this as, as one of the good works that they did. They saw this as a charitable deed. You're about to be crucified. Let us stupefy your mind a little bit. You don't want to go through this with a clear head. And so they'd give him this to drink. Jesus refused it. Notice, Jesus refused any pain-numbing drug. He wanted to face the agony of the cross with a clear mind and not medicate it in any way. Now look at verse 24. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him, and the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. So there they are, about to mount Jesus on the cross, stretching out his arms, getting ready to to, to pierce his flesh with the nails, but first they strip him. 
Now, it was the custom of the Romans to crucify a man completely naked. They did this so that the man would be as humiliated and degraded as possible. That's how they wanted them in crucifixion. We also know that in Jerusalem, the rabbis protested this practice. They said, in the name of dignity, just so you don't offend public morality, can't you just put a loincloth on the people that we execute? So we don't know exactly if Jesus was executed according to the fullness of the Roman custom or whether this concession to Jewish sensibilities was made. But at the very best, he was just wearing a loincloth because they took off his regular garment and instead of tearing it up, the soldiers cast dice for it in fulfillment of scripture. That's from Psalm 22. And then it says simply, if you take a look at it there in verse 25, and they crucified him. Mark doesn't give us the detailed description. They stretched out his arm and they pierced his wrist with the nail and then they pierced it. You know, it doesn't give it to us like a novel. He just says, and they crucified him. And we almost say, well, why don't you give us more details? Why don't you tell us what it was like? I think there's two reasons for that. Why none of the gospel writers, not Matthew, not Mark, not Luke, not John, none of them give us the physical details of what it was like to be crucified. Two reasons, I believe. The first one was that everybody knew. Everybody knew. In the Roman world, you knew what it was like to be crucified. You didn't have to describe it to your readers. But the second reason is, is that as difficult and as horrific as the physical sufferings of Jesus on the cross were, that's not the point of it. You know, as a teacher before you this morning, I'm kind of faced with a little bit of a dilemma. I want to explain to you what Jesus would have experienced physically on the cross, and I will. But I'm afraid that that will obscure in your mind what the real point is. And the real point isn't what Jesus endured physically on the cross. It's what happened spiritually at the cross. So with your permission, let's make an agreement here. I will describe to you what Jesus underwent physically on the cross. But you have to agree to understand that that wasn't the point of it. That wasn't the greatest agony that he suffered. The greatest agony was spiritual. Let's take a look at it. What would happen when a man was crucified? Well, first of all, you know, of course, before he even went to the cross, his back would be torn open with scourging. They would take a whip with leather cords, maybe a dozen leather strands on it, like a cat of nine tails. And at the end of those little leather strands or strings, they would tie pieces of bone or rope or glass. And then the man beating him, the soldier in charge of the flogging, would come over and whip the end of that vicious cat of nine tails on the top of his back and drag it down. By the time they were done with the lashes, You could see internal organs or bone in the back. Then they would take them up to the place of crucifixion, in Jesus' case, dragging him the last distance. Then they would take that man with the torn open back and they would throw him down upon that cross. Then they would stretch out the arms and take a nail and drive it through the wrist. Not the hand, the wrist. We know this because they've discovered archaeological excavations of crucified men and they found exactly where the wound entered through and there's a spot right there on the wrist where you can pierce through and it would support the whole body now i know some people would say oh wait a minute then the bible's inaccurate because it talks about jesus hands being pierced well no here's the point in the in the greek language of that day they didn't have a separate word for wrist this was the whole hand you know from here up was the hand and so it's entirely accurate 
Now, when you pierce a person's wrist in that spot where they would place the nail, and you can kind of feel on your wrist where there's a little hollow spot, and right through there they would drive the nail, you would sever a major nerve. And that would produce two things. First of all, your grip on your hand would immediately go like a claw-like grip and be stuck there. The second thing is that it would produce an intense, fiery, shooting pain all up your arm. So you're nailed there with your hands and then your feet. Actually, it seems that they put the nail oftentimes through the ankle bones together. One nail piercing through both ankle bones as they're set side by side. And so there the man is there hanging on the cross. You can imagine what a terrible position to be in. But the real difficulty of being on the cross was that you couldn't breathe. You see, hanging in that position, you can't raise yourself up to get a good breath. If you ever have bronchitis really, or asthma really bad, and you, you just can't take a proper breath, you know, all you can take is these shallow, unsatisfying breaths. That's what it was like being crucified. Now, to get a better breath, you had to pull yourself up by your arms and push yourself up from your legs and try to fill your lungs the best you could, but then you scraped your open back against the rough wooden beam. The lack of oxygen would make your muscles cramp. And you'd sit there, hang there. Sometimes criminals on the cross hung for days. Sometimes animals came and literally started eating away pieces of them as they hung on the cross. Now, if they wanted to speed the process of death, the Roman soldiers came along and they broke the shin bones of the man hanging on the cross. This meant that he could no longer push against his feet to raise himself up to get a breath, and then he would suffocate pretty soon. You see, as slow and as torturous as death on the cross was, actual death could come from many different sources. You could die medically from acute shock from blood loss. You just eventually lost so much blood that you went into shock and died. Some men on the cross died from suffocation. They were just too tired to breathe anymore, and they would suffocate on the cross. Other men died from dehydration because they stayed out there so long. Other men would die from a heart attack that was induced by stress. It seems that Jesus died because his heart ruptured. Now, why would we say that? Well, because in the Gospel of John, it tells us that when the soldiers came and wanted to inspect whether or not Jesus was really dead, that they pierced his side right up under the rib cage with a sword. And out from that open wound flowed forth blood and water. It was two separate kind of substances. You could see blood flow and you could see water flow. Those are symptoms associated with with a ruptured heart that fills with a watery-like substance around the the cavity, around the heart, and then the blood, of course, from that. And so probably Jesus died ruptured, might we say a broken heart on the cross, medically speaking. Well, friends, that's what it was like to be crucified. That's what it was like to hang on the cross. And if you want to know how bad it was, I want you to consider one word. Think of the word excruciating. You know where we get the English word excruciating? Literally, it means out of the cross. And then up above the head of the criminal on the cross would be written an inscription of the crime that he had committed. And what was the crime? Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Mark just gives us the last part of the inscription, the king of the Jews. That was the inscription. And there he is, hanging on the cross there. Now, if that's not bad enough... Jesus was in bad company the whole time. 
You know, a lot of times you think, I can go through anything if I've got people around me to support me, you know, to help me, to encourage me. Look at the people around Jesus and what they did at this time. Verse 27. With them, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. And so scripture was fulfilled, which says he was numbered with the transgressors. So there are two robbers, two thieves, one on his right hand, one on the left. And later on, Mark is going to tell us that these men were reviling Jesus the whole time. Well, isn't that precious? These men are on the cross themselves. They're being crucified themselves. And yet, they, they, well, they're going to use the opportunity to revile Jesus on the cross. What, is it, he's in a worse situation than they are? But they take the occasion to revile him. Now, you know from the Gospel of Luke that one of those robbers came to faith. One of them stopped himself and stopped his reviling and said, well, this is, I've got to make a different choice here. I wonder what it was that made him stop. Some people speculated that he looked at the sign above Jesus' head that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And maybe he looked at the word Jesus and said, Jesus, that means Jehovah is salvation. Well, maybe this is a savior. And then he said, of Nazareth. He knew what kind of city Nazareth was. It was a dusty, degraded, backwater little village. Nobody wanted to go to Nazareth. He said, a man from Nazareth, he can understand anybody. He's a man of the common man. And then he thought, king of the Jews, well, if he has a kingdom, maybe there's room for me in his kingdom. But one of those thieves, whatever it was that made him trust, he came to trust in Jesus. And he asked for entrance in his kingdom. That wasn't the only company Jesus had at the cross. Look at verse 29. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, together with the scribes, mocked and said among themselves, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him reviled him. Now, friends, crucifixion was a slow way to die, and death could come any number of ways, and there was all sorts of physical torture associated with the cross. But it wasn't just physical torture. There was also incredible mental torture from hanging on the cross. And Jesus was mocked and humiliated as he hung on the cross. You know, it's a whole different world in sports these days than it was a generation or two ago. It used to be that there was this real high ethic of not just being a good loser, but being a good winner. And, you know, you didn't taunt your opponent. You didn't talk it up on them. You didn't gloat in their presence. You know, you just went about your business in a dignified way. You figured, hey, I won this time. Maybe next time I'm going to be the loser, but I'll just be happy with what I've won today. It's not like that in sports today. Now they do all this trash talking, right? Now the whole point is to mock your opponent and to humiliate him. And if you win over him, oh, you pour it on all the more. I hate that. You know, it's bad enough being beat by somebody else in an athletic thing. But when they start pouring on the mocking or the humiliation, it just gets under my skin. Could you imagine how it was for Jesus on the cross? Mocked and humiliated. These men pouring on the scorn. And what did they do? They blasphemed him and they said, oh, if only you get down from the cross, then we'll believe. And then they said, well, if you would save others, or you did save others, but apparently you can't save yourself. First of all, they had to admit that Jesus brought salvation to many people, didn't they? They admitted it. He saved others. They couldn't deny that. 
Oh, you could bring along quite a parade in front of that cross, couldn't you? Lepers that were made clean, blind people who could see, deaf people who could hear, sinners who had been forgiven, lives that had been restored. You could bring quite a parade in front of that cross. He saved others. But it's exactly because he would not save himself that he saved others. I think that's a principle not just for the life of Jesus, but for our life too. G. Campbell Morgan said, that in the same extent that we are willing to sacrifice ourselves, we can be used as channels to bring God's salvation to other people. Oh, we don't save them, of course. It's only God who saves them. But God wants to use us as instruments, and it's only to the degree that we'll be willing to lay down our lives that we can be used. To minister, to be used by God that doesn't cost anything that doesn't make you feel like you're dying to self sometimes, I don't think Jesus has any way like that to offer you. Instead, it's the same principle. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. And so here's Jesus on the cross, enduring this suffering, enduring this reviling from all sorts of people, even those being crucified with him. And then creation itself seems to join in sympathy with the Creator. Look at verse 33. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a holy moment, my friends. Jesus there, when the darkness descended over all the earth, and apparently it stayed there for three hours. It couldn't have been a solar eclipse. This was at the time of Passover, which always happens at a full moon. And you can't have an eclipse at a full moon. Besides, eclipses don't last for three hours. But you should know that early Christian writers said that this period of darkness for three hours at this time and at this place was attested by secular writings. And you could look it up in the Roman libraries of the day. Darkness comes over all the land and Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, friends, something holy was happening at that moment. And this is the real point of what happened at the cross. At that point, God the Father was putting upon God the Son the guilt and the shame and the penalty that our sin deserved. Please understand this, friends. That the worst suffering of Jesus was spiritual. It was not physical. And what God is saying is that you need to understand that there was Jesus on the cross dying the innocent in the place of the guilty. When we look at that cross and know that Jesus died upon it, we need to say, we deserve to be up there. We deserve not just the physical punishment, leave that out of your mind for a moment, but the spiritual agony that Jesus endured having this sense of separation and receiving the wrath of God upon himself, standing in the place of guilty sinners. We deserve that. When did Jesus ever sin? When did he ever deserve wrath from God the Father? Never once. But he stood in our place. He said, here's a precious one of mine. I don't want them to undergo your wrath. I don't want them to be the target of it. I'll stand in their place. And Jesus endured that on the cross. And at that moment, there was a very significant sense in which Jesus rightly felt forsaken by God the Father. And this is a mysterious statement, my friends. People scratch their heads and they wonder. They say, well, was Jesus really forsaken by God the Father? Yes and no. 
Yes, he was in the sense that he was really and truly and legitimately made the target of the wrath that we deserve. And Jesus was treated as if he were a guilty sinner. Now, friends, not just as if he were a guilty sinner, but as if he were every guilty sinner. Have you ever felt overwhelmed sometime by a sense of your own guilt before God? Where, where you look into your soul and it looks so black, so dark. And you feel at that moment as if you are the guiltiest sinner who ever walked this earth. Other people don't see it. You know that. You know they don't see what goes on inside your mind and the wickedness that you imagine. And you know the blackness of your own guilt before God. Now imagine if you could combine the very depth of that sense from two people and put it together and put it on one person. That would be a heavy load to bear, wouldn't you think? What if you could combine it from every person who's ever walked this earth and put it on one man? That's what Jesus faced on the cross. That's what made him hesitant to say, Father, I don't know if I can go through with this, but then trust in God the Father at that critical moment and do what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where it says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He was made the target for all the wrath of God. Friends, I'll say it again. We must understand that Jesus died for us in our place, the innocent for the guilty. We're the guilty, he's the innocent. And he died on our behalf. Understand as well that Jesus not only endured the withdrawal of the Father's fellowship, which must have seemed like a shock for that. Every moment that Jesus lived his life up to that point, he lived it in perfect communion with God the Father. There was never a sin either inside of him or one that he chose or anything, not from birth, not from experience. There was never a spot of sin that would separate him in any way from perfect fellowship with God the Father. Not once. He was like Adam before the fall. And then at this moment, Jesus not only has the guilt and the shame of one sin put upon him, but it's like a dump truck load of sin laid upon him. Having never felt it before, can you imagine how overwhelming it would feel? So friends, do you see what he's going through here? Not only that, did he experience, he experienced the, the sense of outpouring of God's wrath upon him. Now, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's also quoting from Psalm 22. What I think is wonderful about that is Psalm 22, a thousand years before Jesus ever hung on the cross, that psalm tells us what Jesus felt and experienced on the cross. It's a prophetic psalm. It expresses both the agony and the victory of the cross. Listen to the agony of the cross from Psalm 22. I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip, they shake their head. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. 
They pierced my hand and my feet. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. That's Jesus up on the cross. A thousand years before it ever happened, prophetically described in Psalm 22, the agony of the cross. But the cross wasn't just about agony. It was also about tremendous victory. Look at it here, the victory of Psalm 22. I will declare my name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even those who cannot keep himself alive. Well, that was Jesus. He could not keep himself alive. He yielded his life unto death, but, but the Lord God raised him up. See, both the agony and the victory of Psalm 22 expressed in such power, such beauty. And when we think about the greatness of Jesus' work on the cross, it should make all of us feel humble. Notice it here. It says that they took a sponge full of sour wine. Did you see it there? Verse 35. Some of those who stood by when they heard it said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. First of all, it's just sort of tragic to see that Jesus is misunderstood at the very end. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you... Oh, he's calling for Elijah. You almost wonder if Jesus thought at that moment, I didn't say Elijah. I said Eloi. Misunderstood. In death as well in life. But then even so, they brought him that sponge of sour wine, that liquid to refresh his voice, to, to clear his parched throat. You can imagine how hard it would have been for Jesus to talk at that moment. And so he receives it gratefully, and he sort of clears out his mouth a little bit. And look at it there in verse 37. Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Friends, most victims of crucifixion spent their last hours in complete exhaustion or unconsciousness. They just died. It was a slow fading, not Jesus. His last act was to clear his mouth and to cry out in triumph with a loud voice. And then what did he do? He breathed his last. I like how it says in one of the other Gospels, he just gave up his spirit to God. You see, at this point, he knows he's accomplished it. He knows that he's perfectly satisfied the Father, perfectly satisfied the righteous requirement of God the Father. He won our salvation by what he paid for on the cross. And so now he says, please, forgive my words, he said, I'm not going to hang around here anymore. It's done. I pe- Jesus was not a masochist. He wasn't a glutton for punishment. He did the work he had to do on the cross, and he said, I'm out of here. I'm going to clear my voice. I'm going to give a triumphant cry and say, the Gospel of John tells us what he said. He said, to tell us die. He said, it's finished. And then he gave up his spirit to God, and it's done. It's completed. 
Who knows how long it lasted? We don't know. You see, friends, Jesus was in complete control, even on the cross, and he used that control to completely submit to the Father. And then when it was done, it was done. And the glorious thing about it is his death had immediate results. You know, we're almost done with the Gospel of Mark. For months, we've been going through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we've seen how in the Gospel of Mark, everything happens immediately, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus is in a hurry in the Gospel of Mark. He goes to this place and that place, all over the place. Well, I want you to see that Mark says that there were immediate results from the work that Jesus did on the cross. Look at it right here. First of all, verse 38, then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What does that tell us? Friends, it tells us that the immediate result of the work of Jesus on the cross was that that barrier between God and man was taken away. It's taken away. There is no more barrier. You see, the veil in the temple separated the most holy place of God apart from everything else, and nobody could go in there, but God says, no, I'm opening up the doors, come into my presence now, because of what my son did on the cross, you can come in. And how was it torn? From bottom to top? As if man tore it? No, it was torn from top to bottom, because God tore it in two. An immediate result of Jesus' work on the cross. Well, what was another result? Take a look here, verse 39. Now, when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Friends, that's another immediate result. People see Jesus for who he really is. Now, you need to see it too. You need to take that as an immediate result in your life right now. First of all, that you will understand that what the Roman centurion said was true. Only the Son of God could do that kind of work on the cross. Friends, it's not that just Jesus is a noble martyr in a long line of noble martyrs who have perished on this earth. No, he did what no other man could do, what only the Son of God could do, and that's be a sinless sacrifice for sin. Friends, if you or I were up on that cross, all we could do is pay for our own sin. But since Jesus had no sin of his own, he could pay for yours and mine and everybody's. Only the Son of God could do that work. And you need to see what the Roman centurion saw. After all, remember, he saw hundreds of people die on the cross. Hundreds. But he saw something different about this man and said, surely this man is the Son of God. And so you see what the Roman centurion did. Well, you need to do the same thing. You need to perceive that only the Son of God could do this work on the cross. And might I say that you should be like the Roman centurion as well and, and, and tell others what Jesus did on the cross. He wasn't afraid to say it. He said, that man was the Son of God, and I want everybody to know it. I'll say it aloud. Have you experienced something special from Jesus at the cross? Then why be so tongue-tied about it? Why not tell someone else? But finally, look at the last result, verse 41. Excuse me, verse 40. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the less, and Joseph, and of Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was up in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Well, you have the veil torn in two. That's one immediate result. You have the centurion proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the second immediate result. The third immediate result is that his faithful followers are still with him. And who are they? They're the women in this case. Where are all the men? They're hiding somewhere. But you have women faithfully following Jesus to the end. You know, they faithfully followed him because they weren't first interested in saving themselves, right? That's how the men thought. 
They'll get me if I associate myself with Jesus. I better hide myself. Jesus was of a different sort. He said, I'm not going to save myself at the expense of others. And these women had the same heart. They said, even if it means spending myself or putting myself in jeopardy, I'll do it to associate myself with Jesus. You know, that's how Jesus wants us to be. To follow Jesus in working to save others by not saving ourselves. And that's the work that he sets before you and I to do. So here it is, friends. The cross stands before you as a crude and perhaps inaccurate reproduction of who Jesus is and what he did on the cross. But the fact of Jesus' death on the cross is something that faces every one of us. We know what it means in the Bible. What does it mean to you? Is that the place where your sins were paid for? Or are you trying to pay for them right now by attending church? You figure enough times at church, enough stars on your attendance chart at church, and God will forgive your sin. It'll never happen. That's the only place where sin gets forgiven. Well, I'll go out, I'll help an old lady across the street. Uh, you know, I'll write a check to a charity. I'll do this, I'll do that. No, none of that can atone. Only that can atone. So look at it this morning and say, Lord, I'm going to stop trying to save myself. I'm going to stop thinking that the Christian life is first and foremost about what I can do for Jesus. No, first and foremost, it's about what he did for me on the cross. Let's receive it this morning. Father, we come before you now and we ask that you'd help us to, to change the center of our life. You know, Lord, we thought that it should all revolve around us. And that we should be the center of our universe. But no, we want to be like Paul, Lord, the great apostle who said, all I know is Jesus Christ and him crucified for me. That's it, Lord. We want that to be the sum of our knowledge before you. And we want that to be the center of our life. Lord, I pray for those who need to come to that place for the first time. And you would help them now boldly to say, I I can't make myself right before God. I can only put all my trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross. Lord, I pray for those who have already done it, that you'd keep them back in that place, because I know that it's not easy to stay there. There's something irresistible in us that makes us want to keep trying to save ourselves. Instead, Lord, we look to what Jesus did on the cross, and we trust it when he cried out with a loud voice and said, It's finished. We believe it. We embrace it. Help us to tell others about it in Jesus' name. Amen.